Rust is a systems programming language with a distinct set of features for safety and concurrency. In previous shows about Rust, we explored how Rust can prevent crashes and eliminate data races through its approach to type safety and memory management. Rust's focus on efficiency and safety makes it a promising language for networking code. Tokio is a set of networking libraries built on Rust. Tokio enables developers to write asynchronous I.O. operations by way of its multi-threaded scheduler. Tokio's goal is to make production-ready clients and servers easy to create by focusing on small, reusable components. Carl Lurch is an engineer at Buoyant, a company that makes the popular Linkerd and Conduit service mesh systems. Kubernetes developers deploy service mesh to their distributed applications as sidecar proxies. These proxies need to be low latency and highly reliable. In that light, it makes sense that Conduit, which is the more recent service mesh from Buoyant, is built using Rust. Carl joins the show to describe why Rust is useful for building networked services. Carl Lurch, you are an engineer at Buoyant. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. How's it going? It's going quite well. Today we're going to talk about Rust and specifically networking in Rust. We've done a few shows on Rust. We did a show on the language itself with Steve Klabnik. He was a fantastic guest. And, and then Alex Crichton came on the show to talk about Rust concurrency. So those episodes might be a good preface for people who are completely unfamiliar with Rust. But I think even if people are unfamiliar, we should give them a chance to catch up. So let's start with some facts and concepts within Rust. Rust is widely used as a systems programming language. What are the advantages of Rust as a systems programming language? So first, systems programming language can mean different things to different people. The way I kind of like to describe it is you can write an operating system or device drivers or like maybe even embed Rust in other programming languages. So for that to be the case, you cannot have a runtime. I will get to that probably later, but like Go, Java, all those use runtimes. So the traditional systems languages have been C and C++. With those languages, if you're not familiar with them, you have to manage your memory yourself. You're dealing with pointers and they're known to be, let's just say, unsafe. If Since the programmer is responsible for ensuring that their pointers are always pointing to live memory and to the correct location because the programmer is responsible for allocating memory and freeing it at the right spots. Uh, it opens up the programmer to writing bugs that can have like very severe consequences in production. I guess a lot of the vulnerabilities that have gotten a lot of publicity have been done to programmers make <laughs> writing bugs. I know it's rare for us programmers to write software bugs, especially when manually managing memory, but it can happen. So Rust, on the other hand, is kind of targets the same demographic as C in C++. It's it offers, like, when you write a Rust program and you compile it, so it is compiled, right? And you compile it, the end executable, the end result is something that's roughly equivalent to what you would get with C or C++. 
So it can run in a lot of the same locations. The big difference is that when it compiles, you're guaranteed to not have any like memory vulnerabilities because the Rust language itself manages the memory for you. But it's able to do this entirely at compile time. And that's the big thing. That's like really the big um, new thing that Rust brings to the table. Like it, it's it's a great language for many reasons besides that, but like it has tons of really great language features that make it ergonomic and just fun to use. But I would say like a lot of those features aren't like unique to Rust. Like I, I bet a lot of those things like Haskell people will be like, hey, we do it first. And, oh, and then someone else before them will say, actually, we did it first. But uh, the way that Rust gets you like managed memory, like I guess the Rust language manages the memory for you, but entirely at compile time, that is something that is very new. And I, I mean, as far as I know, Rust basically did it first outside of like the ac- academic realm. So this can I mean, this other people, like other Rust developers probably know more about it but like this definitely came out like academic research and i believe there were some toy like not toy like academic research languages that exemplified the um the things that rust is building on but rust itself is kind of the first language that has been generally used like in industry that offers these capabilities those capabilities you're referring to are those what give rust the safety it's because it's often described as a safe programming language right so i guess the way to think about like if you were doing c or c plus plus right you would have like i'm going to allocate some memory and then you get a pointer to it and then you pass that pointer off to some other location in the code whatever gets that pointer it needs to assume because it didn't allocate the memory something else did and something else kind of is responsible for freeing it but whatever when you pass pointers around those code locations have to assume that at that point the memory hasn't been freed and it's still valid so because in those like when you just have a pointer you have no real way of knowing if the, if the memory is still valid or not. So you just kind of have to assume that whatever gave you that pointer is doing the right thing. Now, if you, especially in the face of concurrency, which is probably why like Alex did was able to like give this like a good like podcast on it, but like especially in the face of concurrency, ensuring that your pointers and the memory stays valid gets really complicated. So it's very easy to say, oh, while this other part of the code base is using the pointer, assuming that it's still valid, I accidentally freed it too early. And then that memory location gets reused or the or the memory location gets unmapped. Like any number of bad things can happen at that point, resulting in seg faults or even worse, like memory vulnerability. So the main kind of thing that rust does for you is like when you alloc- when you allocate memory in rust the compiler is able to keep track of exactly where in the code that like that memory is owned so in rust every piece of memory has one owner right and it's able to statically see where as ownership is passed along to different variables or locations so like if the owner says i don't need it i'm going to pass it off to this other like variable then it's a- then the compiler is able to see okay this variable doesn't own the memory anymore now this new one does right so because it's able to statically track that at one point in your code base that's variable that owns the memory goes out of scope without handing off ownership the rust compiler can see okay this is where like the memory can no longer be accessed anymore because it can statically track every point in your code base 
that accesses the memory. So once it sees this memory can't be accessed anymore, it frees. It frees it at that point because it knows nowhere else in your code base can you access that memory. Now, of course, having just one variable that can access a piece of memory is not super useful. Rust also has the concept of like borrowing. So like an owner can maintain ownership of a piece of memory, but then it can like say, call a function, say, actually, I'm going to let you borrow this memory for as long, like for the lifetime of this function call kind of thing. So the memory stays at the original location, but another part of the code can borrow it. Now, the thing there is what Rust can do is say, okay, I can guarantee at compile time that the owner of that memory stays around longer than the piece of code that borrows it. So that kind of ensuring that the memory stays alive as long as it needs to is like the, is basically what Rust does. And that's care, like being able to do that kind of carries over, like, I mean, at a very basic point, it just manages your memory for you, preventing all these like security vulnerabilities that come along when you make mistakes in that area. But then you can take those capabilities and carry them over to like other kind of concepts like concurrency and use those kinds of features around ownership to model APIs for concurrency, for network programming, for like all these other things that get the programmer additional safety by like putting more heavy lifting on the compiler, if that makes sense. It does. Earlier you said something about a term called a language runtime. What does it mean to have a a language runtime? So a language runtime is any kind of library code that the compiler has to inject into, or not necessarily inject into the end executable, but somehow when a compiler takes your code and compiles it down to a target, the runtime is anything that that end target requires to run. So for example, well, at the very basic, like even C or C++ has like a runtime, but in their case, it's gonna be extremely small. So like, for example, like when you call malloc or like like libc is kind of kind of like the c runtime or like c++ has its own runtime that it uses i th- i don't even know exactly what i believe it like for unwinding and like exceptions and those kinds of things so but go go on the other hand like is also a compiled language so it does not need a virtual machine but it provides like i mean if you're not familiar with go it gives you a lot of capabilities like garbage collection uh, green threading go routines all those kinds of things so it kind of it gets you all those capabilities by having a fairly large runtime and the runtime again is just any library code that is required for the like the language to run once it's compiled okay we had this show with Alex that we've mentioned a couple times now with Rust concurrency, and he described some of the concurrency features of Rust in detail. As you said before, it's useful to have these lower-level safety properties because when you have safety at a low level, if you build things on top of that, then the safety commutes to the concurrency primitives that you build on top of those safety primitives, what are the concurrency primitives that Rust offers? So Rust itself as a language and as the standard library and what you really get when you just use Rust is pretty much just a language over anything that the operating system gives you. Okay, so basically that means that you can get threads. Threads is an operating system construct 
And that's roughly like the foundational of its concurrency story. I mean, the, li- the standard library gives you um, other tooling like atomic reference counted cells and um, channels for passing data between threads. But the main concurrency pattern is just using operating system threads. And that's like as opposed to, for example, Go gives you green threading. So that's kind of it has its own concept of what a thread is for the language and at compile time it then takes all those like language threads and multi and implements its own scheduler and multiplexes them on operating system threads. So when you're just using Rust straight out of the box, you get operating system threads and that's basically it. However, because Rust is a systems language and up being able to build in Rust itself anything that you can anything that you can imagine but not like anything that any other language implements you can basically implement directly in rust because like rust is a language at the level that you could use it to actually like implement go you could you could use rust to implement other languages right because it's at the same level as c or c++ so once you get at that level right you cannot you can maybe not necessarily bundle a lot of things that are offered kind of as part of the language and higher level languages, you can just kind of offer this like core primitive and then let the higher level capabilities like, well, network, like asynchronous non-blocking networking. And anyway, we'll, I'm, we're gonna get there, but you can let you can leave all of those things to libraries, which lets the end user uh, pick and choose what works best for their case. Like for example, if you're implementing something to run on a large server, that's gonna you're gonna have a completely set different set of requirements than if you're doing embedded programming on a tiny like mobile chip, right? So Rust lets you target both of those use cases and lets libraries build up their ecosystems outside of the core language so that all these different cases can be best served like at the library level. Tokyo is something that you have worked on a lot. T-O-K-I-O. Tokyo is for networking in Rust. Explain what Tokyo does. So Tokyo is built on operating system primitives. It provides asynchronous networking and I.O. So like roughly it gives you the ability to program with TCP, UDP, Unix domain sockets. Um, It also gets you file I.O. and a bunch of other kind of stuff that you would expect at the I.O. layer. And it uses operating system primitives like on Linux, ePoll, on like OS 10, KQ, BSDs, KQ, Windows is IOCP, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it takes all of those different non-portable APIs, builds a shim layer on top of it. So actually like at the very low level below Tokyo, there's actually Mio, which is a, like at the the absolute lowest you can go, it builds compatibility layer on top of those different different operating system primitives. Tokyo is a higher level on top of that, which gives you a more, a richer kind of full featured asynchronous environment. So if you're implementing like high performance servers or clients, you in Rust, you would be able to use Tokyo to kind of get you everything you need out of the box. So like for example, Node.js or Go, those actually provide a lot of those primitives as part of the language. If you, to get an experience like Node or Go, you would probably use Rust plus Tokyo. 
So I could use Tokio to build a web server, but Tokio itself is not a web server. It is not a web server. So like, for example, what it gives you is asynchronous TCP, asynchronous UDP APIs. It gives you, it actually gives you a scheduler because it has a concept of a task, which is similar to an Erlang process or a Go routine, but it's asynchronous. So there's no like green threading. It's kind of like a concept of like a unit of execution, but fully asynchronous. And there's a scheduler to take all of these different tasks and multiplex them over like a thread pool. So again, you can break up your, you can implement a server using like these primitives that Tokyo gives you, break it up into like lots of little tiny tasks. So for example, you would write one task would handle one specific socket. You would then give all those to the Tokyo scheduler and it would handle multiplexing all of that across like a thread pool, doing the traditional M and scheduling pattern. So you have N tasks, very probably a very large number of them, probably can you reach the millions? And then you'd have like eight threads and the scheduler handles scheduling all your tasks across all those threads. So in the situation where you have a million tasks to schedule and you're scheduling them across eight threads, could you give a more concrete situation? So what is going on in my program that would lead to a situation where there are a million tasks and eight threads to be scheduled on to help people map the idea of tasks to higher level program execution? Uh, let's start a very simple, right? Let's Say you're implementing a Hello World server. So like you're implementing a server that just accepts sockets and then writes Hello World to them and closes them, right? So one way you would model that like with, let's let's start with threads, right? If you're building like a very like traditional blocking, like synchronous system and you get threads for concurrency, you would open your TCP acceptor, um, listen for sockets on it, and that would live on a thread. And whenever you accept a socket, you would spawn a new thread and say that thread handles that socket. So you'd end up getting one system thread per socket, right? Now, without trying to start a flame war about threads versus non-blocking, let's just say best practices tend to shift towards using less threads than one per socket, right? Because native threads tend to have an upper limit in the number that you really can have simultaneously, if you want to get into the millions, you're going to probably not want one thread per socket. So the way you do that is like if you were using ePoll directly is you would have one thread and you would use the ePoll primitive to get to receive events. So ePoll just it tells you like, OK, this socket is ready to do something with. So you would ask the operating system, here are my million sockets let me know when one socket is ready to read data from. And ePoll would just like sit there and then some sockets are ready. It would say, hey, these are the sockets that are ready. And on that thread, you would then loop through all those sockets and then write some data to it. And that's a fine way to do things. It's just is a little burdensome to, uh, to write your server using at that low level. So Tokyo comes along and says, all right, we're giving you the concept of a task, which roughly speaking of, you can think of as you can just take a unit of logic from your application. And in the case of the hello world, that would just be one unit of logic is like the task of accepting new sockets from the listener, right? So then you just have spawn one task that says, just loop over this TCP acceptor. And when you get a socket, 
take that socket and spawn a new task. So just, just like you'd spawn a new thread in the blocking model, here you just spawn a new task. And then that new task that handles that one socket, it just reads data from it and writes data back to the socket. So now in this kind of very simple model, you get one task that handles accepting sockets and then one task for every single socket that you accepted. And by breaking it down in these kind of individual tasks, it's like more manageable, you can reason better about it. And on top of that, the scheduler can do smarter things with it. So when I described with the raw ePoll, I just said on one thread, you just loop and handle all of them. But now if you want to start adding multiple threads, because you are you want to add, add some concurrency to the story, because if you only use one thread, you can only use one core on your so one like physical CPU. If you want to start using more than one physical CPU because modern day servers are scaling out in in terms of number of CPUs, you need to start thinking about okay, how do I take my application and like and best utilize all the physical resources available to me? So by breaking your application down to small units that are fairly isolated, in this case, one task for one socket, and you give them all to Tokyo, Tokyo looked at all of those tasks and says, okay, how can I run this best across the physical like CPUs that are available to me? Tokyo is an entire ecosystem. There are many different things you could build with Tokyo. What else needs to be within that ecosystem to enable people to build tools for networking with Rust? Two thoughts come to mind when you say that. Like, yes. First of all, Rust and the networking and Tokyo and the networking ecosystem is still pretty young compared to other languages. So we're still building out. Well, there is an ecosystem. You are correct. We're still building it out. It's not as established as like one with Java or Go would be. But also like in the Rust community, there tends to be a philosophy of breaking down like libraries into like kind of like the micro library <laughs> approach, which I don't really love the term, but it kind of fits where you break down the abstractions into like smallest unit that makes sense together, like uh, that makes sense standalone, right? So when I talk about Tokyo, there's actually, it's kind of this um, collection of libraries that fit together. Some are maintained by me and some maintained by other groups. So for example, at the roughly speaking, there's like all the all the abstractions around asynchronous programming are actually maintained by the Rust team roughly in a crate in a library called Futures. It's a very creative name. It just provides futures and the asynchronous model. And Tokyo takes that and builds on the networking layer. So then when I first started working on Tokyo, we we're like, okay, let's have Tokyo be everything. Anyway, so since then, we've been focusing to make Tokyo exactly what I described earlier. But besides that, that just gives you, as in other languages, that just kind of gives you the lowest level primitives. And you're right, you want to build like web frameworks, you want to build like higher level primitives for writing your clients and servers so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time, right? Because still thinking on at the raw socket level is still pretty low level. So... So another project that I've been working on that's still very early, it's not even released to crates.io yet, is called Tower. It's something that we've been working on at Buoyant for conduits, which I think we're going to get into into a bit. But it's very heavily inspired from Finagle, and it kind of gets you a higher level framework to implement your servers and clients in. 
it's like it's really oriented around the request response model. So, like I said, it's very similar to Finagle or also like Rack and Ruby. Although that's only HTTP, but Tower's like HTTP, like in any other protocol. I think like Express.js was also kind of like uh, abstraction around request response for Node, but we're kind of building that out separately. So the end goal, hopefully at some point, is that you'll be able to like write a web service or a gRPC service like as easily just like writing just in in a way that you can just focus on your application logic. If that makes sense. So there's Tower, there's which is the request response. There's Tokyo, which is just the runtime. And then there's like people building other things on top of Tokyo too. Like I think there's Actix, which is an actor model. There's people building like other RPC kind of libraries with them. I think there's, uh, oh, what's it called? I don't, I don't remember the name. There's like TARP. There we go. That was is like TARP, T-A-R-P-C or something like that. But yeah, there's people building higher level things on top of Tokyo. Taking Tower as an example, how have you used Tokyo to build Tower? So Tokyo, uh, since it just provides the sockets, essentially, it provides the sockets in the runtime, like you break things in terms of tasks and you use sockets and it runs it. So with Tower, what we're trying to figure out is, okay, given that, how can we model a task to just instead just be responding to a request? So can a task just be like, I get a request, how do I generate the response to it? And then from that, we're also building, like we built like an HTTP 2.0. Um, oh, well, there's also Hyper, which is 1.0 and 2.0, but like there's like HTTP, how do, there's gRPC. We have Tower gRPC, which gives you a gRPC layer on top of Tower. So you just, so, and again, you can model, since everything's just request response, gRPC is extremely request response oriented. So, so you just implement your like endpoints as like here's my gRPC request and let me return the response and then what Tower does it kind of like it takes that it breaks it down like that server that you implemented or client it breaks it down into tasks and submits it to the Tokyo runtime just run across all your CPUs kind of thing and then of course like because uh, just like in with Ruby Rack or Express or these other or Finagle. If once you model your application in terms of request response, you can then build middleware, which a middle piece of middleware is just something that that takes a request and handles the response by calling some other middleware. So it just builds a stack where each layer gets a request, does something in the request, and passes it on to the next level. And that level does the same thing all the way up, gets the response all the way down. And by breaking it down, you can kind of say, okay, my application, I'm going to break it down to a stack of middleware. One middleware is only going to have handle retry. So that middleware gets request. It tries to pass it on to the next layer. That layer fails. That requ- And then the retries middleware's job is say, okay, that layer re- failed. Let me wait a second and then try again. And that so now if you build an application on Tower, you can just say, okay, all I am doing is implementing my application logic. I get a request and I return a response. But now I can inject this retry middleware and just out of the box now, that piece is going to handle retries for me. So I just implement requests. I get a request, I return a response. If that processing fails, the retry middleware just tries again. And other middleware might be like load balancing. So that load balancer takes like 
Hemp gets a request and then distributes the like the, that request across any number of inner number of services. So by gist of that is basically you got a very clean abstraction where you take a response, uh, get a request, return a response. By doing that, you can break up your app into a whole bunch of like loosely coupled components, and some of these components are very reusable, right? Like if and this was Finagle's prompt, like Finagle's premise is like. You, you just want to implement your application code without having to deal with all the gory details of making it like production ready. But and you can implement all the gory details of making production ready, decouple from the application, and even like decouple from the protocol. But that is the rough premise. It's still very early on for Rust. Um, like I said, we're building it for Conduit, which is like a service mesh load balancer proxy. And we're using this like real world kind of production use case to build out this library that's useful to the general Rust community. And so the real world production use case you would describe as conduit and the more general library is tower. Right. Because like without trivializing conduit, there's actually a lot of code that's not in tower. Like there's a lot of TLS, security, authentication, configuration, like details on how to inject in your Kubernetes cluster. Like there's a ton of code, but it's also a lot of it is just taking all these different components, like load balancing, retry, like service discovery, like buffering, like how, how do you add buffering and that kind of thing. And taking that and gluing it, all those different tower pieces, gluing it together in a, into a production stack. So if I have an application that I want to be expressed in terms of services, Tower is useful for giving me the the API, the interface for expressing it in terms of a service. Right. So unfortunately, I've realized, come to realize that service is a very overloaded term. <laughs> so what Tower calls a service is actually pretty different from what like Conduit calls a service. Unfortunately, I ended up at a place at a company that merge, uses both terms liberally, which makes it hard to talk about. So maybe we could talk about service as a vocabulary word within the world of Tower, since that's a little bit lower level. And then you can talk about how service is expressed in the context of conduit for the purposes of disambiguation. So what I call a service in Tower, it's just a Rust trait called service. And for those not familiar, a trait is kind of like an interface. It's just kind of like an interface, basically. You, It's a set of functions that you implement, and then you can kind of operate on it generically. It's just how a trait is how you write generic code in Rust, basically. So there, it, Tower provides a service trait, and it's almost, it's I think it's pretty much just defining a function from a request to a response. So... In Tower, a service, calling something a service is just a fancy way of saying it's a function that takes a request and a response. And when you think about it, like if you're familiar with Rails, for example, when you write an action, like a controller action, that single action is just a function that takes a request and returns a response. Like the same thing I'm sure applies with Go and and Node. There's, there's probably this abstraction where at some point you write a function that takes a request and you return a response. So all this fancy talk of services for Tower, it's just just that, just a function. Okay, and now that you've given a little bit of color for how Tower works, can you explain how it's useful for Conduit? Right. So in the Kubernetes world, a service is going to be 
essentially just some a network process that handles requests and responses for one kind of small unit of logic. I guess that's a microservice. So like for example, if you're implementing some large application that's like like I don't know, an e-commerce site that sells widgets, you're going to have your front end web server that you get requests for widgets and then it's like okay you're going to try to buy this widget let me first authenticate you and to do that instead of having all that logic internally in this one application i'm going to have another another like network process somewhere else in my infrastructure that's job is only authenticating users so what the front end does is then make a request to authentication service it gets so that service it just gets requests for authenticating user and returns a response that either authenticates or rejects, right? So at a very high level, it's a similar concept in that you're just you're getting a service gets requests and returns responses, but it's like at like the network pro like the network infrastructure process layer, right? So then again the bit like your widget e-commerce will then make a payment request, like a billing request to your billing service. Again, that goes over the network. That thing, that um, network process was just focused on that one thing. It issued, it like tries to process the credit card and then returns like successful response. So the main difference here is like you're, you're breaking up a large application into kind of units of code that, that can be managed at an infrastructure level individually so that you can, as an organization, as the whoever, whatever company is writing this widget e-commerce site, right? That you can, they can have different teams. So engineers make small, like you don't, you can have smaller teams of engineers focusing on one kind of service and they can own it themselves. They can manage deployment. They can manage the like development life cycle. They can manage deployment and all that stuff like as a team versus, and kind of just like have who like other services in within the organization. Like they can be customers of that, like, of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and this functionality was in Linkerd to some extent, which is the service proxy that Buoyant launched with. Conduit is the newer service proxy or service mesh, depending on what you want to call it, and it's in Rust, as we've been discussing. When you think about the end-to-end networking stack for Linkerd, which is in Java, and you compare the overhead of Linkerd to that of Conduit, Conduit is is less. And why is that? Why is Rust a better choice for a service mesh than Java might be? When you're taking like a large monolithic application, breaking it up into like network like services like we just described you kind of like you solve one problem which is organizationally at the company now small teams can manage small things but you kind of introduce a whole other set of problems which is now when you want to do billing you don't do like a function call internally you have to make a networking call and as we all probably know the network is not as reliable as making a function call so to in order to like maintain really like robustness and production grade when you make make that networking call what you might do is insert a service mesh and that the job of the service mesh is kind of like to facilitate the communication between all of your different services to make it as easy for the developer to treat it like almost almost like 
a function call within the process, right? So the goal is really to make that as to to make that networking call as robust as it possibly can. So Linkerd was like the first production grade service mesh that was released uh, a number of years ago. And it was it really kind of started taking off before, like as Kubernetes was also just starting wrapping up. So it, the way it was designed is like you are going to dedicate some metal, like some to basically you're going to take some heavy servers and you're going to dedicate those servers to just run Linkerd, and then all your other kind of application nodes or microservices they'll talk from there they'll live on their servers and then when they want to talk to another service like they will talk to they'll make a network call to linkerd on its service and then linkerd will handle do all its magic and proxy it to the call to the end goal right so the key here is that when it was architected it was designed to one not be tied to Kubernetes. It was designed to like handle all the flexibilities needed by existing organizations, and it was designed to like run in its own hardware. And when it was built, it was built using uh, Scala and Finagle. So the JVM is like a really great like tool for writing production grade networking services, but it tends to have a, come with a large hardware requirement. So when you deploy a Java app, you have to give it a lot of memory and a lot of CPU, like a lot of memory. And that's fine when you're dedicating like a server to run that one Java process. But once Kubernetes came, Kubernetes came along, it started like it launched this whole other model of way to uh, way to do things, which was the sidecar model. So Kubernetes like handles running all of your services across all of the infrastructure, and then what it, you do is you inject your service mesh process one time on every single like. A pod. So like a pod is just a group of services running on the same server. So like the, the conduit service mesh ends up running essentially on every single server you have in your infrastructure. Now, you can use Linkerd and the JVM to do that, but that's going to require a significant number of resources. Like I think people like Adboint actually working on Linkerd made a heroic effort to try to reduce the footprint of Linkerd, like the memory footprint, to get the very minimum, smallest possible amount that you could that you needed to run Linkerd. And I think it got down to like 100 megs, which for like 100 megs of like memory, which to run a JVM process, that like is pretty amazing. But still, that's not like, that doesn't really work great in the sidecar model. So... Buoyant was like looking at this problem. It's like, okay, we need to kind of the sidecar model is great. Let's let's adopt it. What are we going to do? We're going to have to probably pick a different language than like Scala to write our service mesh in. So at that point, you're going to get down to okay, what are we going to use? We can use like I think like Go probably has a small enough footprint. You got C or C plus plus. When and this service mesh is really a proxy, like a networking proxy. You're going to run every single bit of data that goes over the network. You're going to run it through this proxy. So you want it to be as fast and lightweight as possible. So historically, like up until like Rust really started picking up steam, you had C and C plus plus, and then like in the medium term past, you kind of had Go, right? Where Go was pretty lightweight in terms of memory, but it came with a bunch of runtime cost over C and C++. So like a Go, if you wrote an application in Go, it's not going to be as like lightweight as a well-tuned like C or C++ application. So, but 
that historically you had to decide, okay, am I going to like use C and C++ and get us as lightweight as possible, but open up the application to this whole like category of memory security vulnerabilities that you get when you write memory management bugs. And it's not a question of if you're going to write those. It's a question of like how f- you will write them, how fast will you discover those bugs, and like how many security vulnerabilities are going to expose to the world, right? There's going to be always like you're going to always have some some level, uh, some number of them. Or are you going to pay a little like some cost, runtime cost, and use a language that is safe in that regards, like Go, because Go by using a garbage collector and it's with the runtime that it provides, it's able to ensure memory safety in the same way that Rust does, but it requires some runtime cost to do so. Now, the good news is that when Buoyant was thinking about like, well, what language should we pick? Rust was starting to pick up steam, especially in the networking, asynchronous networking kind of layer of things. So now there's this new world in which you can get the best of both worlds. You can get like the low levelness of C or C++ plus the memory safety of Go. And in fact, you actually get a little bit more safety because you can you leverage the type system to design APIs that are like harder to misuse. So when Boyant approached that, like, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I've been using Rust for like, I don't even know, like four years now? I don't actually know, a long time for like in the in the world of Rust users. But I think they, they made the only choice that you really can these days. Like when you need the low level performance, like when you really, every kind of like little bit of juice matters because you're writing a proxy, Rust is like really the only choice you have now. The only good choice. Again, I'm biased. Well, it sounds like there are obviously a lot of strengths. There are also some interesting challenges because as we've explored from this conversation, you're simultaneously working on Tower and Conduit, partially because Tower doesn't exist in the Rust ecosystem. The Rust ecosystem is nascent. So you simultaneously have to build up the Rust ecosystem while you're building up an application level product. Right. I mean, it's definitely was like a gamble, but like when you think about it, I mean, like the for Boyan for writing a service mesh, the service mesh is the fundamental, like it's the fundamental product that Boyan is building. And Boyan wants to go to an organization and say, like, hey, run every single bit of data that you you have through our product. Right. I mean, again, the organization will manage it and have full control, but now you're adding this new wheel. Like I said, if you, you pick C or C++, you're going to end up with you're going to end up with security vulnerabilities. Like I'm like that's just fact. I'm I do not I'm not aware of anyone who's built a significant networking product that's exposed to the world has not had in C or C++ and has not introduced security vulnerabilities. Like and Buoyant's choice was like, okay, let's just say we it's critical for users of our data to feel like like to be safe i guess like we don't want we want to minimize their risk and maybe even like minimize it even further than if they used conduits like reduce the risk even without conduit in terms of like potentially like having security vulnerabilities and like i mean let's just say like data security seems like especially like as the years go on seems like a more and more critical thing for organizations to really care about so in that way like go uh, like C and C++ wasn't even like a realistic option for them. Well, us now. Like they made this choice before I joined, which is why I say them, right? Because I I work there now. But anyway, so then it was basically between Rust and Go, 
the quest is like Go was more established in terms of the library ecosystem. Rust was more nascent, but offered a lot more in terms of performance and lightweight and like low memory capabilities. So in I think like while Buoyant has to invest a lot in building that ecosystem up, like one thing is we're building a proxy and that's pretty low level. So kind of like as the application is being built and we add features, we're just kind of thinking like, okay, how does it fit? Should we write directly in, con- in conduit or should it be exist in tower? Like, so we're building up the product in terms, and all we have to decide is like, well, do we want to keep it locked in into conduit or do we want to make it available to the greater world? So there's, since the, these features that we're building for towers actually pretty core to the value prop of the product, I think, I mean, I'm not a product person. I'm not like, I don't, <laughs> These are all like product decisions, but my take on it is like it makes sense for Boyne to actually have like a significant amount of expertise and like stake in building these things exactly in a way that it's it makes sense for a proxy. So one thing that historically when you're building like Finagle or like these kind of abstractions like Tower is they tend to exist in languages that already have a runtime cost. And it, when building these abstractions... They tend, and historically, have not really have focused more on like, okay, we can add a little bit of like runtime cost to the request response abstraction because it's just going to be running in an application layer, and the application layer is going to add so much overhead that like the little bit we add in the request response abstraction library doesn't really matter. That's great there if you're building it for a proxy where literally the entire application, like the entire hot path for the data is through this request response abstraction, like every single bit of performance there is gonna matter. So when we're building tower, like because like Buoyant has this stake in building out that ecosystem, we can take the like priorities that are important for Conduit as a product. So really, I mean, the short version is like, I'm just an engineer there. I'm just kind of like, this is my opinion, but, and I'm not a product person, but I think the decision made sense. Well, Carl, I want to thank you for coming on the show. You've given a pretty thorough front-to-back understanding of why Rust is useful, what networking abstractions have been built on top of Rust, and an example of an application-level product that can be built on top of those networking abstractions while simultaneously helping to build up those networking abstractions to being more useful. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wow. Wow.